calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 1. One. Sal Brooks lay awake in darkness, waiting for the screams. Nightmares had roused her halfway through most nights since London. Back in New York on the force, there had been bad nights too when she lay in the cold bed and wished the world would not end, just stop, so she and the monsters in her mind could catch their breaths and share a cigarette. London did not stop. It never would. A rift had opened from the Thames out into the pink beyond the world, the land of demons of magic. They'd closed it, Sal and Grace and Liam and Asante and Menchu and Francis, all of them together, They'd killed the dragon in the melting streets of London. But they had fixed nothing. London remained transformed. Flesh-coated walls and the Ferris wheel they called the eye blinked now. People died, people became butterflies. The tower's ravens merged into one jet-sized creature and menaced Heathrow. Magic bled from the wound that was London. And now Sal could not trust the pink in sunset or the dawn. The Vatican and the society refused to go public, to explain. And because the Vatican would not help the world, Team 3 had left the Vatican. They'd been on the road for the three months since, traveling from town to town to fight outbreaks and put out fires as governments flailed to respond, saving villages from monsters, saving monsters from villages. Sansone fed them leads, or Liam tracked cases down online, or Menchu heard something from his contacts in the priesthood, or Sal found clues in the paper. They'd shattered the Icemen of Minsk, saved Bond from clockwork vines, and stopped a guy in Belgium who dressed up like a werewolf. While around the world, ancient powers woke, and kids began performing miracles. They were bailing out a boat with a broken hull, but none of them had any better ideas. 
So Sal lay awake, alone and cold under three banks of covers in a Polish boarding house, and tried to build her courage to sleep. Scratchy wool blankets would be here in the morning, and the brown-striped wallpaper. The whole close, cold room and the deep slopes of green valley wall outside. They would not melt. Nothing would change into anything else, except in the usual slow way that the whole world turned to dust and mud. She made herself watch the sky out the small window, cloud-choked and chill. The black offered no comfort and that was a comfort all its own. She was not ready for the scream. It wasn't hers, was the thing. Something moved out there in the night, big and heavy and rushing toward her. It crashed into the window pane. Claws scraped, a hooked beak wrapped, big dark eyes stared through the glass. The scream came again, a croak, a cracked cry. She forced herself from bed, her breath pale mist, checked the silver cross around her neck, not tarnished yet, and grabbed the knife from under her pillow. The window screeched as she thrust it open, and the raven tumbled through and fell to the carpet. Pink threads wrapped its wings and tightened across its chest, drawing black oil instead of blood. Its wings drummed against the floor, and she jumped when they brushed her bare ankle. The bird's eye blinked and rolled in pain. In one talon, the raven held a rumpled, pierced letter with Team Three written in a spiderweb hand. This is bullshit, insisted the part of her brain that still thought of herself on some level as Sal Brooks of the NYPD. This was way beyond procedure. Ravens fucking with your window at night, much less ravens being attacked by glowing pink threads, had nothing to do with police work. This was not on the detective's exam. She needed a specialist. That part of her lived in a world where her brother had never come to her apartment bearing a stolen magic book. A world where she'd never joined the society. A world where London had never happened. But time passed. People grew like trees around their scars. Sal Brooks was a specialist now. So she knelt beside the raven and set a hand to the surging muscles that drove its wings, and when she whispered, hold still, she was not shocked to see it try. It still fought her when she slipped her silver knife into the wound across its chest. She pressed against the raw flesh. The oozing black oil that was not blood smoked when it touched her blade. She slid the knife tip beneath that pink wire and sawed up and down. The raven's beak snapped. Its talon caught her wrist. When the thread gave, it whipped loose like a snapped violin string, and she pulled her head back just in time. The broken end cut a stripe into her cheek instead of her eye, and the blood from that felt hot and thick and almost like tears. The thread coiled, hissing on the carpet. It blackened and shriveled and tightened and crumbled to ash. The raven let her go, and she let the raven go too. In a graceless flurry of feathers and oil, it found its feet dripping still and spread its wings and bobbed its head in what Sal hated knowing was a bow. It released the letter and nudged it forward with its beak. She held the raven's gaze as she picked up the envelope. Ravens weren't owls. You could not stare eye to eye with one of them. They watched you crossways. She held out her bleeding arm and it hopped on. Talon's not tight enough to pierce this time. 
Beyond the window, the black sky spread. She bore the raven there and offered it the night, and it accepted. She read the letter by the dim light in the cold. It might have been written in ink. She suspected it was not. When she turned, the room was full. Arturo Manchu stood in the center, face grave. Liam, beside him, held a crowbar that a contact of Manchu's in Switzerland had flashed with silver. He looked angry and confused, as ever. And beside them both, Grace. She bore no weapon. She did not need one. But Sal could not look at Grace right now. She made Sal feel too human. The paper fluttered in a night wind that cut her as deep and sure as the thread. She didn't feel the cold or the pain, not really. She was learning tricks to not feel. She hadn't thought about Perry in almost a month. That was a lie. It's from the maitress, she said. She has a plan. She's holding a council of war. She wants us to come. A pink glow worked through the northern clouds. It might have been the northern lights, though they were too far south for that. Or it might have been a reflection of the dawn. It was neither. Pink lines threaded through the early morning clouds when they met Father Novak outside his church. He was a big man and wrung his hands and looked toward corners as if unused to fear. Manchu led, Sal by his side, and she watched how the priests embraced. Father Novak's hands stayed clenched the whole time. The parish church was small for Poland, meaning big, but empty save for statues and a few flickering devotional candles. Stained glass shaped the gray light into a vision from another world, a world with colors. Soot darkened the paintings on the walls and ceiling. Father Manchu, Father Novak said, I've never seen anything like this. Everyone's heard about London, but Vilechka is a small town where there are no tourists. This sort of thing can happen anywhere. Father Manchu sounded tired. Maybe that was just Sal. She caught Grace looking at her and turned toward the priest. Sal's arm hurt under the bandage where the raven's talons had cut in. The wound on her cheek was so clean and straight it did not hurt at all, as long as she did not smile. It always has. You only know about London because people were watching there. Novak watched the cross on the altar and did not answer. It is worse now than it used to be, Menchu allowed. Liam paced around the church. Where he found metal, he touched it, scraped his fingernail along it, then shook his head and moved on. Novak continued. I called the number I was given when I came to this parish, the number I was told never to call. The sister on the other end of the phone, she said there would be a large team with the equipment and the experience in these matters. We have experience, Manchu said, but there are not so many of you. Manchu opened his mouth as if to disagree. Then he looked around. Sal saw him count the four of them and the ones who were missing. She saw him hesitate. Sal stepped forward. Father Novak, after you made that phone call, the woman on the other end made one of her own, to us. The Vatican has sent a large team. They have weapons and armor and explosives. They will go down into your mines and kill whatever they find there and smash the rest. 
The mines are your main industry, right? Tourists come to see them? A heritage site? She waited for his nod. The team that's following us, they don't care about the mines. They don't even care about the people trapped there. They care about closing the rift. We're smaller, we're less well-armed, and we don't want this to get bloody. Which was a nice way of saying that if the rest of the society knew they were here, apart from Hillary Sansone, of course, Team 2's lead and their occasional information source, they'd have sent the Team 1 strike force with an arrest order alongside the usual search and destroy. But first, we need to know what happened. Novak nodded once through the shock. In the mines, there is a cathedral made out of salt. Its chandeliers, its altar, its carvings, all salt. One of the carvings was a carving of a book. <laughs> Three days ago, that book opened. We did not understand at first. We sent people down to investigate, and more people after those, and then police. One of the police came up, raving about statues about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, but Novak could not repeat what he had said. That put Manchu back on solid ground. He took the priest by the shoulder. We will fix this if it can be fixed. Once, he wouldn't have said the if part. Sal let the priests talk. Gray sat flipping through a hymnal, legs crossed. She might have raised her head when Sal left the priests behind to approach Liam. When Sal glanced back, though, Grace had sunk back into her hymns. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. 
To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Nobody's yet mentioned the matress. Liam had worked his way around the church to the altar, where he knelt, crossed himself, then stood and touched a candlestick. Or what we plan to do about her invitation. If she's invited us to her grand old magic party, we should at least RSVP. We'll decide after we get through this, Sal said, if we get through this. She half smiled. She had thrown that pitch, expecting him to swing. I know we're not technically working with the church anymore, she said as he took the burning candle from the candlestick and hefted the stick two-handed. But church robbing doesn't seem your style. Hardly church robin, Liam said. We are God's own servants. We need silver, and look at that, God provides. Manchu stepped back from the other priest and raised his voice. Let's go. Grace snapped the hymnal shut and rose without delay. Liam slung the candlestick over his shoulder like a baseball bat. Sal cast a glance back as they approached the door. Father Novak wrung his hands over his belly. A small man in a large shadowed room in a large shadowed world he once thought he understood. As he pushed the door open, he said, Take me with you. Manchu paused. Sal wished he hadn't. You've never seen anything like what's down there, father. But I will, sooner or later, even if I stay up here. Manchu did not deny it. It's my parish, Father Novak said, and that settled it. It's your funeral, Liam muttered as the doors closed behind them. Novak led them down a winding stair into the mines. The corridor's echoes cast their footsteps back to them, and the rough stone listened with the same indifference it had shown the footsteps of centuries and the screams of the dying and afraid. The mines were our wealth, Father Novak explained. When salt was rare, kings fought and died for this place. The miners lived in the depths, chipping salt from the rock, and in time they grew to know it, to love it, and they carved it. Salt figures in the walls first, then whole statues, and after that they hollowed out great halls, not just bedrooms or nooks to cram with tools, but meeting chambers and dormitories and even a chapel with walls and chandeliers and an altar, all of salt. It is more beautiful for what it is not than for what it is. They use no gems, no gold, only something we now hold so lightly we reach for it at tables without looking to see it if it's there. It may be the most plain and common chapel in Europe, and the richest. This is no mere mine. It's a tomb, is what Sal felt sure Liam would have said if she hadn't elbowed him in the ribs when he opened his mouth. Instead, he rubbed his side and said, ow. Grace smiled at that. Sal smiled too, then caught herself and looked away. This was business. They had no backup. There was no plan B. She couldn't afford to joke or think of anything but the mission. The electric lights failed halfway down the stairs, but their flashlights still worked, and Liam had chemical flares. The dark walls seemed to grow closer. Sal hoped that was only an illusion. They found the first statues soon after. 
Salat let Manchu handle the priest, who gasped, recoiled, but could not look away. The first statues were a group of three, a woman, a girl, a man, all running and still at once. Their faces were already softening, their teeth no longer picture sharp. The folds in their clothes had broken off where they should have reached a point. It's hard, Manchu said. It always is. Did you know them? Novak shook his head. Each man takes this differently, Manchu said, and finds his own peace with God. They may yet be saved if we succeed. He said a quick prayer over the statues before they went down. He still did that when he could. Soon there were too many. A tourist with a camera around her neck, another whose skirt flared as she ran. Many touched one another on the arm or shoulder, always on bare skin, and most seemed afraid. Gray stopped to don gloves and duck into her jacket hood. Liam did the same and added a pair of silvered knuckle rings over his gloves. Manchu guided them around the statues, stepping over fallen salt children and hugging the wall to pass a group of uniformed workers frozen in struggle with the statue whose features had all worn away. Their flashlights carved many shadows from the figures, so they seemed to move even when still. Sal had grown used to dread, but each time it came around, it unraveled more threads of her. Creeping through a strange mind in the dark, say, that was a new thread. And the shifting flashlight discs, and the statues that she was pretty sure only seemed to move between moments of illumination. The faint smell of brine that came from nowhere and everywhere at once. That undid the hem of her cool. The first wall carving she'd glimpsed that was not a transfigured tourist, but a faceless saint offering a gift to a woman in robes, their mouths open. That unraveled a seam. Her tremors, her shortness of breath, that was white lining peeking out. She could keep it together. She had to. People were counting on them, the whole world even. This was how you bore up under pressure. This was how you gathered all your gaping seams and did not freak out by taking one step at a time into the dark beside your friends. Still, she almost lost it when a salt hand clutched at her from the wall. She jumped back, cursed. The hand closed where her arm had been. It had no fingers, just a thumb opposite a fused paddle of salt, and its eyes were hollow and its mouth a circle bored into a boneless face. It snatched for her again, and one leg bubbled free of the bas-relief where it had been standing a moment before. Before it could take a step, Grace was there. She didn't burn her candle hot for this. She just moved faster than Sal could track, like a human who was very, very good at violence. She grabbed the salt statue's head in her gloved hands and jumped, bearing all her weight against its neck. The salt cracked, and the statue crumbled. Grace sprang to her feet before Sal could offer her a hand up. Behind them, Liam punched another faceless statue. Where his silver knuckles touched the salt, it sparked and flowed away, and with a manic grin, he stepped back, lifted his candlestick like a baseball bat, and slammed it into the saltling's face. It burst, face and body alike, and Liam laughed. Got ya. Don't get cocky, Grace said. I say no shame in celebrating my accomplishments, he said, as behind him another saltling emerged from the wall, hands clawed, reaching out, but Grace burned hard and shattered it before it could catch him. There's no shame, so long as you don't get sloppy. She brushed salt dust off her gloves. Nothing I couldn't handle. Keep it together, 
Sal said. Father Novak had drawn back against the tunnel wall, and while it shouldn't have been possible for a man that pale to blanch, over the last three years, Sal's sense of the possible had extended a great deal. One of Novak's hands clutched the cross beneath his black shirt, and his mouth was so tightly drawn that teeth showed where his lips refused to touch. He was falling apart. Sal sympathized. There was a sort of cruel joke to this, which had only grown crueler since London. People had notions, some right, some wrong, about what sort of evils they might be called to bear. Occupation, war, insult and assault, sickness, betrayal, death, of course, and pain, too. They made their peace with them or stored up joys and certainties against the event. But who expected salt monsters to come out of the wall? You couldn't tell who would break and who wouldn't when they met magic. Brave soldiers snapped when they saw their first demon, not because they weren't brave, but because the bravery they'd built wasn't flexible enough to wrap around the notion of a demon. They cracked, like Father Novak was cracking now. Sal was still deciding what to do about that when Menchu said, Father Novak, how far to the chapel? And that question sealed him up. He was, when he turned back to Menchu, no longer a man fighting monsters, but a priest guiding a visitor through a hometown marvel. For now, at least. Up here, he said, follow me. The salt chapel blushed pink with unnatural light, but the statues that filled it did not move. Their feet had melded with the salt floor, which was carved with grooves like marble tile. The salt crystal altar glittered in the nave, and salt chandeliers sparkled when Sal's flashlight swept across them. But when that circle of light had gone, they still glowed, dim and warm as coals, reflecting pink light. The statues that had been people did not face the nave or the altar or the crucifix. The pink light flowed from a carving on the wall, a Saint Jerome, Sal thought, though she wasn't sure. Manchu had despaired of her ever learning the iconography, but you couldn't spend years in Rome without picking up some. Sebastian was the one who looked like a bondage pinup pincushion, and Jerome had the book and the lion. This carving had a long beard and something like a cat at its feet, and anyway, it held a book. She doubted the initial carver meant the book to be open, or glowing. What now? Father Novak asked. Now? Manchu said, we close it, and if we are fortunate, we fix all this. Are you often fortunate? Sal started forward. She didn't need to hear the rest. Grace and Liam were close behind her, and Manchu after them with Novak. They had no reason to keep back. Magic did not have a minimum safe distance. As Sal neared the book, the light began to thrum. This close, it smelled fresh and sharp like new-crushed ladybugs. She lifted the cross from around her neck, and it trembled as she reached for the book. The silver sizzled and began to tarnish when it touched the salt cover, and the tarnish spread fast down the cross toward her fingers. The cover weighed 50 pounds going on a 1,000, but with a groan, she swung it closed. It landed with a thud, and the thrumming stopped, and the smell faded, and the light died and they were in the dark with their flashlights again. She was halfway through her outbreath, not quite ready for relief, when the pink light returned. 
If she had been newer to all this, she might have thought at first that the faint cracks on the closed cover, blushing and throbbing, were just after images burned into her retinas. If she thought that way, she would have been long dead by now. Asante had told her back on Rhodes, wasn't it? That with magic, you had to trust your senses. Your judgment was not trained to this world. It judged wrong. Your gut understood. It's breaking. She scrambled back, half-falling until Grace caught her, turning away. The book exploded. Salt shards and powder struck Sal in the back with enough force to topple her, but not enough to topple Grace. Light flooded from the hole in the wall where the book cover had been. Brilliant rainbow light that thickened the air and soaked into the statues, which creaked and shambled and bubbled, their features melting to indifferent mannequin sameness as their bodies began to move. When they lifted their feet from the tile, they stretched and cracked and dripped salt. They moved like waking lions, slow at first, but there would be speed soon. Pink light quickened in their mouths and in the tips of their stretching paddle hands. Grace held Sal up. That was nice, but they didn't have time for nice. She recovered her footing. That wasn't supposed to happen, Father Novak said as they backed through waking saltlings toward the entrance. They're supposed to be okay now, you said. Manchu looked too tired to answer, so Sal said, that's how it used to work. But there's more magic everywhere now. Sometimes the books can't push it all back into where it comes from, the outside. What happens now? She weighed her silver knife in her hand and wished she had a gun. Not because it would have helped, even silver bullets worked less well than she liked. But because she knew guns, they were a comfortable substitute for control. We run. Uh, no disrespect or mutiny intended, Liam said, but you may want to look behind you before you hang your hopes on the run option. More saltlings bubbled out of the entrance tunnel. Some were child-sized, which hurt worse. Circle up, weapons out. Liam and Grace didn't have to be told, and Menchu knew to mind the civilian, but saying the words helped. If nothing else, it made all this feel planned. Panic was the enemy. Saltlings reached out. Liam jabbed with the candlestick and they drew back, concerned but unafraid. One of them, a bulk that must have been a man, jumped forward and Liam clubbed it down and it shattered. But tarnish was spreading across the candlestick silver and the saltlings drew closer still. I can make a path, Grace said, if you all follow me. There are too many of them. They won't touch me. I'll be careful and I'll move fast. She could. That was the problem. She could burn the candle of her life to move faster than any human could. How much would it cost her to get them through the mine back to the surface? Months? A year? More? How many could she spare? But if Grace didn't move fast enough to be sure to stay safe, the salt might kill her. Sal could not bear that either. She didn't want to give the order. She glanced at Menchu and saw him also pause. Of course and the saltlings closed in. Sal opened her mouth, unsure what she was about to say, and she never found out. A saltling jumped for her and another for Liam and two for Grace. They did not land. Great ropes of stone tore from the church floor and smashed them, scattering other saltlings left and right. Crushed salt bubbled and flowed molten back together. A blue light neared up the tunnel, pulsing in heartbeat time, and the saltlings fell back from it as if burned. Sal held her breath, not hoping, because there had been little percentage in hope in the last few months. 
The salt lings around the exit shrank back. One tried to stand against the light, but the blue glow pressed around it like a fist. And when the saltling shattered, it did not reform. And there, in the tunnel mouth, in a paneled dress, dreads woven high atop her head, stood archivist Asante, radiant. Figuratively radiant, at least. The fossil heart she held was the thing actually glowing blue. Follow me, friends, she said. Let's not stand on ceremony. I can't keep this up forever. Two. Manchu chased Asante up the stairs, following the blue light cast by her heart. A rhythm pounded through him of heartbeat and breath and wooden stairs, but also a rhythm of time. He had always been running after her or away, up or down some staircase. Their paths ran together and apart and back like rivers, and they traded silt and water every time they touched. The last time they were together, they'd stood at Team One gunpoint on the banks of the Thames, Manchu not yet ready to lead the society to which he'd given his life, Asante unable to wait for him anymore. And then, not a week later, he'd escaped from Rome with Grace and Liam and Sal. And here she was again. And he felt afraid of how right it seemed. It's good to see you again. I just can't help saving you, old man. But she spared a glance back at him and a flash of smile. If we're still working on the old script, what happens next is you hand me over to the witch hunters. It's a new script. Each step filled his legs with sand. He'd started sweating several years ago, and he did not think he would ever stop. Even his mustache felt heavy. Uh, the old one lost its appeal. Asante laughed once she could spare the breath. She wasn't used to field work, to the running or the banter. They really should save it for the kids. But then the kids had all grown serious in recent months, especially Sal, and they were too split for banter, Sal and Liam holding rear guard while Grace ran ahead in case any saltlings resisted the heart's light. How did you know where to find us? Did Sansoni tell you? Sansoni? Asante hesitated on the stair before she remembered what they were running from. I thought you had left the fold, Arturo. The fold, yes, but I don't know if you ever leave the web. Sansone had nothing to do with it, she said. I received an invitation, addressed to all of us as a group, and it included an address where you might be found. The maitress likes her jokes. Here I thought you came back because you liked us. He stumbled. There were no stairs underfoot anymore, no next step up, nor any walls closing in. The glorious, full, gray-pink, cloud-swollen sky stretched overhead and a green lawn all around, and across the lawn, the white walls of the Salt Mine Museum, and past that trees, and past those trees, the whole rest of the world, which carried on as if nothing anywhere was rotting or dead, as if the world still stood as firm and steady as it would have seemed in the childhood of someone whose childhood was not spent in Guatemala in the wars. He stumbled, but Asante steadied him. I do like you, old man, but I have the damnedest time catching you. Frances hovered nearby at a salt circle's center, her eyes red from lid to lid, her tentacles waving and curling in the blush of magic, her wheelchair abandoned for the moment, chanting. The heart's blue light pulsed in time with the words she spoke. 
Grace sat opposite the tunnel mouth, watching, keeping count. For Asante, for Arturo, for, yes, that was Liam emerging from the mine, sweat slick and panting, his silver knuckles tarnished. And her eyes tightened at the corners. Where's Sal? It wasn't fair, Sal thought as she swung the candlestick and shattered another salt line, to blame Father Novak, much. Some of these statues were his parishioners, his people, and he belonged to them as much as Sal to Team Three and to her brother. If Sal had heard Perry cry her name from the darkness below or Grace, what would she have done? Rhetorical question, she didn't need to ask, she had done it. Admittedly, in those situations, she had more of a plan than the priest who, when he heard a woman's voice cry his name and call for help, just stopped. And when the cry came again, barreled down the stairs past them, slamming Liam against the wall when he tried to block his way. Liam recovered fast, but the father was already down there in the dark. Liam growled, and whatever conclusion he reached about how much a priest stood in care of his own life, about what duty he, Liam, had to stop a man whose path led to death from following that path, Whatever conclusion, Sal reached the other one. Because when their eyes met, he started to go up, and she to go down. He caught her wrist. Before she could pull away, he offered her the candlestick. Come back. She took it. I'll try. Down was always easier than up. The air thinned as the last of Asante's blue faded. Sal took the steps three at a time, and after two flights, she saw Father Novak's rounded back. Father, but he ignored her and lumbered down to the landing where they'd seen the last statues and stopped. Sal caught up with him in time to see what he had seen, her impression its own kind of carving. A hand reached toward the priest out of shadow, a hand with skin on it. And that hand led to an arm and that to a shoulder and a human face, an older woman's face, mouth open, pleading. Ivka, the priest called, Ivka, hold on. That's not her, Sal shouted, but he had not seen the half of the woman still in shadow. Or if he saw, he did not care. He took her hand anyway. The salt rushed through him, curling and transforming, filling him from the outside in so his scream died in a grinding hiss. Sal staggered back up the stairs, her body aching with the need to be away, as Father Novak's head revolved on its shoulders without care for the usual limits of muscle and bone and saw her, and his backward legs shambled toward her. She turned, she remembered to turn, to run, but more saltlings bubbled out of the wall. She hit one with the candlestick and it shattered, hit the one behind it and that one shattered too, but tarnish was spreading through the silver, almost at her hands. And Asante's light was gone and there were so many stairs between her and the sky, and all along those stairs the blackness moved with salt. She tried to run over the broken saltling's bodies, but when she threw herself forward, she stopped short and sharp with a breathtaking pain in her skull and neck. Her hood had fallen off, and her ponytail slipped free, and the thing that had been Father Novak held it as with each second it grew heavier and heavier with salt. The weight of transformation creeping inward toward her scalp. Maybe this was how dying felt as the animal at the core of you stretched its last heartbeats. She had a knife, didn't she have a knife? If she could cut the ponytail off, maybe she'd survive. Where was the knife? Had she dropped it? It should be in her pocket, no, not that pocket, the other one, and her hair was heavy as stone. 
A gust of wind blew her against the wall, and she felt a sharp snap like a bone breaking, but outside her body, and heard a crash of salt. And Grace's eyes were large and black and beautiful in the dark, and Sal was alive and free. We don't have time, Grace said. I'll carry you. It wasn't a question, and Sal had just begun to nod when breath left her lungs as the wind was all around. Three. When they reached relative safety up a nearby hillside under the cover of trees, Manchu let them stop and turn and watch the choppers close in, flanked by knights. The Team One soldiers' armor did not glitter as their wings bore them through the dull skies, two flanking each helicopter in case of magical assault. Tavani Shah was always a practical commander. They're not hiding anymore, he said, and realized even before Asante answered that he was not surprised. That was how much the state of play had changed since London. They have nothing to hide, certainly not now. And you know Shaw? She adapts. Sal and Grace and Liam and Francis did not speak as the chopper circled. As figures in black jumpsuits took aim on the drop zone and the saltlings crawling from the tunnels. Sal hadn't spoken much since Grace pulled her from the mine. She hadn't spoken much recently. They had all grown into themselves. He should reach out to minister, but each time he'd gathered himself to do so, he'd found himself asking strange questions in the silence of prayer. On what grounds could he help her? Yes, he was a man of God, and yes, he could offer faith and consolation, but their worlds had been crumbling together, and he knew that she knew that none of them had certainty to offer. The few times he'd almost drowned felt like this whirling in a storm of bubbles, unsure which way led to air. He had thought he knew, but so did men who swam down, thinking it was up until their lungs gave out. I wish I had the knack, he said. You adapt to, Arturo. There's just more you to adapt, that's all. Closing the book didn't fix it, he said. It just made everything worse. That's been happening more. She bowed her head. This little island of reality where we stand, where right angles exist and time runs forward and down most of the time points down, is sinking. The ground soaked with magic now. It seeps out through ever more fragile vessels. When you close those books, they try to push out all the nearby magic. But of course they can't, because there's so much magic. And they break. What can we do? The Team One Knights winged away from the helicopters, far beyond the splash zone of whatever was about to happen. Change, she said. But I don't know how, or to what. I imagine that is what the maitress wants to discuss. Can we trust her? I don't have any better ideas. I should never have let Father Nova come down with us, he said. And in that moment realized how much he had missed her. And missed more than that, the ease of being with her, the comfort born of making so many mistakes down the years, that each new failing barely registered against the accumulated mass of wrongs. Confession wiped you clean, which the bond between Manchu and Ashanti did not. That was the opposite of the point. Between them, each new error mattered. No absolution wiped it away. But it was accepted, and they moved on. How did he get you to let him lead you down? 
Did he argue his duty? These are my people, this is my place. I have to be part of whatever happens next. When Manchu didn't answer at once, she shook her head a little, her mouth bent, familiar. You know, someday a demon will use that line on you, and we'll all be dead. He could not yet bring any real humor to his laugh, but she'd tried, and he felt more grateful for that than he could express. Down by the mine, the helicopters vented their canisters. A viscous silver liquid poured down into the salt mines of Ilechka. Chemicals in the cascade caught fire as they fell, and the helicopters pulled up and away from the smoke. At this distance, even the helicopter rotors sounded muted, like he had left the news playing in another room. The other room was everywhere. It couldn't take much more of this. Tomorrow, Menchu said, we'll decide what to do about the matress. For now, let's find a place to rest. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.